God, you are so good. Lord, we do not deserve the place that you've given us in your kingdom. That you call us sons and daughters. That while we were your enemies, you sent your son to die for us. While we were still in our sin. Not because we earned it, not because we deserved it, because you are a God of love and compassion and mercy, but you are also a just God. So you sent your son to die in our place. And Lord, I pray that you would cultivate hearts of gratitude this morning as we think about all that you have done for us throughout human history to tell the story of your great love and your great mercy and the fact that you would preserve your holy word for generations so that we can come together as a family, as your body, and learn from you and knowing confidently that you will speak to us. What, a, what an amazing thing, Lord. We beg for humility, that we would not see ourselves more highly than we ought, but we would place others above ourselves, that we would look for those who are in need, those who need help, and that we would be your hands and feet, and we'd be your mouth, Lord, that we would share words of encouragement that are rooted in your truth, that we would deliver them on time that we would be open to you working in our lives. So God, this morning, it's, it's yours. Every day is yours. Every moment is yours. Let your spirit do his work through your word this morning. We love you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have been obviously studying the book of Romans And we are getting to a place now where Paul is telling us in light of everything that he has taught us through Romans 1 through 11, how is it that we shall now live? How do we put everything that we've learned into practice? It's been said that the mark of a great sermon isn't that we leave and say, wow, that was a great sermon. It's that we leave and we say, I know what we should do. I know what I must do. And that's exactly what Paul is now moving into as we've uh, kind of turned the corner in our study of Romans. If you're joining us here uh, kind of in the midst of our study and you miss chapters 1 through 11, I have to lean into this because this is the importance of reading Scripture in context. If we jump into Romans 12, we're going to see a lot of things that we should do while missing everything that God has done. And what happens is when we move to our responsibility as Christians without seeing clearly the price that God paid for our salvation, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If we move directly into the shoulds and we don't understand what God has done, it turns into kind of this legalistic pursuit where we lack the power and the confidence of all that God has done for us. That's why Paul says in chapter 12, verse 1, I beg you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies 
a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. By the mercies of God, because of all that God has done for you, in light of the mercy God has shown us in the midst of our rebellion and the price that he paid to justify us, and the grace that he has shown us by adopting us into his family, considering how God has worked throughout human history to reveal himself to us, how he's working through the chosen people Israel, through prophets and priests, and through ultimately his son, because of the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In light of all of that, once we begin to understand that, we will see it's a natural response. It's our reasonable act of service. Some of your Bibles say it's our spiritual act of worship. We may ask, what can we possibly give God? What do we give a God that has absolutely everything? Well, we give him ourselves. What do we give a God that paid such a high price to make us right with him and to allow us to boldly come before his throne because of his son, Jesus Christ? What do we have to give that kind of God? We, we have ourselves. It's surrender. So that, that last week, that's what we leaned into, that reality that the Christian walk starts with an understanding of God, his holiness, his majesty, his justice and his mercy, and his story throughout scripture of redeeming humanity and then it moves into how do we love God? How do we fulfill that greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind? And we see Paul make it very practical. You present yourselves as living sacrifices, dying daily to your own pursuits and asking God, what do you want from me? I'm yours. And again, none of us do that perfectly, but that's that process that Josie was praying for of sanctification. We're learning every day how to die daily, how to say no to just our own fleshly desires and yes to whatever God would have for us, knowing that God is good, knowing that whatever he has for us is far better than anything that we could conjure up ourselves. Love the Lord your God. That is the greatest commandment, right? But then what did Jesus say was very much like it. When he was asked, okay, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God, right, with all your heart, which is really the first four commandments summed up. Know God's before him. Do not use God's name in vain. The first four commandments focus on loving God. But the next six, Jesus says, and the next is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And he even takes it a step further, right? When he's talking to his disciples, he says, a new commandment I give to you. You have heard it said, love your neighbor as yourself, but I tell you, love one another as I have loved you. That takes it to another level, doesn't it? Because he loved us by going to the cross for us and laying down his life. So now that we've learned about how to love God, Paul now looks at how do we love one another? How do we make it practical? Now then, how shall we live in a Christian community as we gather together as a family? 
What does that kind of love look like? Look at verse three of chapter 12. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. So let, let's, let's break this down here. For I say, through the grace given to me. What's Paul talking about? It's not salvation, although God has given us salvation. Let's look at the word grace. What does the word grace mean? It means a free gift. Very simply, it means a free gift. So Paul says, through the free gift that God has given me. Now, let me make this clear. If we don't catch this verse, if we don't understand how foundational verse three is, everything else we study in this chapter will be undermined. Just like if we miss surrender, we miss a right relationship with Jesus. If we miss humility, we're gonna miss a right relationship with one another. There is no such thing as a right relationship with one another if there is a lack of humility in our lives. Pride destroys relationships. That's what we'll see. And so Paul starts with a statement of humility. He says, I'm telling you this, I say through the grace given to me, that means that, that free, well, let's, let's look at what he tells us that gift is. Look at Galatians chapter two, verse seven. We'll have it on the board for the sake of time, but Galatians 2, verse 7, he says, on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, so he's talking about the Jewish, uh, the Jews seeing that Paul had been sent to the Gentiles to share this message of hope and salvation through Jesus Christ. When they saw that that gospel had been taken to the Gentiles, the uncircumcised, and it had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me towards the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me Barnabas, the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So what was the grace given to Paul? Well, let me give you one more verse, Ephesians 3.8. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. What's the grace that Paul was given? It was his calling. He was given the gift of the message of the gospel preached to the Gentiles. It was his calling. It wasn't something that he dreamed up. It wasn't his personal desire. He didn't put together a 10-step plan of how to, to see the Gentiles come to know Christ. It was given to him by God, and because of that, he could not boast in that gift. It was a free gift. Here's something that we need to remember. What God has called us to and equipped us for it's his free gift to us. 
It's not about our abilities. It's not about our talents. It's not because we're uniquely special or we figured something out. It is God's free gift to us. And being a gift, it has immense value. Our calling, and each one of us have a calling. That's what we'll learn this morning. Each one of us, we have a gift. And that gift is a good gift. And sometimes we lose sight of that. Even if we're serving, even if we're using it, even if we're ministering, and we're gonna use that word a lot this morning, ministering. And that's a a very Christian, churchy word. But can we call it something else? Can we call it just helping someone? Go out and help someone. That's really gonna be the core of this morning's message. Go out and help. And we've been equipped in unique ways to help one another, to build one another up, but it's God's gift to us. It's not something that we have created in another ourselves. So Paul says, I'm saying this because God has given me an immense and valuable gift. Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think. So again, we're gonna get into some spiritual gifts in the body of Christ and how they're lived out. And really, how are we to love one another? How are we to live out our faith in a community of believers? And guys, when I'm talking about love here, we have to apply the biblical definition of love. I'm not talking about a fuzzy feeling. I'm not talking about a a warm feeling of affection for one another. We know that that's not always there. I'm talking about a deliberate decision to lay down our life for one another. That's what we're called to, first and foremost, to love God with all our heart, and that love, as we've already seen, is in action. It's a dying to self. It's a laying down of our lives. That's how we love God. God, what do you desire from me? And then carried into this community right here and right now, how do I lay down my wants and my desires so that I may be a help to those around me? That's how we live it out. That's love. Love costs something. Love isn't easy. And for our culture and my generation, that's hard to hear. We like easy. But as soon as there's a price to pay and our needs aren't being met, it's hard to move forward. But if we really want to know what it looks like in a body of believers to live out our faith, guys, it costs something. And first and foremost, it has to cost our pride. It's absolutely essential that we understand that because as I said, pride undermines everything we're gonna study. This inflated view of ourselves that we're the story, that the story revolves around us, that I'm here to get my needs met. It ruins all of this. You want to look at the dysfunction in the church today and ask why? This is why. It's because of pride. It's a pride that has been cultivated by our culture. Remember, do not be conformed to this world. Conformity is, this is about me. All the attention needs to be on me. It's the elevation of self. But we know God resists the proud. That pride comes before a 
fall. So as we elevate ourselves, we are building an unstable ground. So you may say, well, I don't struggle with pride. Well, do you value your opinions over the opinions of others? Do we view everyone on kind of a, a sliding scale of value? Where depending on how much money you make or, or how much schooling you have or wh- whatever, I mean, the world has all kinds of, of uh, categories to determine someone's worth, their age, their appearance, and depending on where you fall on that scale, that determines your value in our culture. But the gospel says, no, we are all valuable to God. And one man, one woman is not of more value to him than another. He is the great great equalizer. But Paul says, think soberly about yourself. And I, I find it interesting that he uses that phrase. We've been there before. I know some of you have. In your life before Christ, you have a little too much to drink and you become the world's greatest philosopher, right? You, 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 what's coming out of your mouth, you think it's the smartest, most eloquent, most uh, articulate thing that's ever been said before. But if someone would have caught you on camera and you went back and watched it when you were sober, you would have been like, man, I am a fool. That's why Paul says think soberly because a prideful mind is kind of like an intoxicated mind. It's not seeing things clearly. Some of you guys, you have too much to drink and you think you're like Floyd Mayweather and you'd go out and, and you'd fight someone who's bigger than you and stronger than you thinking that somehow you had unique strength. That's, that's intoxication. You have an inaccurate view of yourself. And Paul says, no, we need to think clearly And again, calling back to verse two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that transformation is gaining a right perspective, an accurate view of ourselves, understanding who we are. See, the worldly mind, it's always looking for affirmation from the world. The worldly mind, it's constantly looking outside of itself for some kind of reassurance, reassurance that my life is valuable and it means something and it's important. But the problem is we use the world's standards to make that judgment. And our culture is pretty fickle, isn't it? You can be a hero one second and you can be the worst of the worst the next. And that carnal mind, it's, it's marked by extreme highs and lows because our circumstances and people's opinions are always changing about us. And we see this so much in social media today where people are begging for some type of validation as they post hundreds if not thousands of pictures of themselves. Tell me I'm worth something. Tell me that I'm valuable. Tell me that my lunch... <laughs> looks tasty. I don't, I don't know. We have this, and it's not bad to want our lives to mean something. What is broken is who we look for to tell us where our meaning lies. 
Have you ever noticed how our society is marked by extreme delusions of grandeur, but at the same time, hopeless despair? Arrogance and emptiness, that's how I would describe our culture. So when Paul says we are to think soberly about ourselves, he is saying that we are to be completely in touch with the reality of who we are, and more importantly, who we are in Christ. Who are we in Christ? Guys, this isn't false humility. Understand, this is not, we gotta clear some things up, because when, I, when people think about humility and having a right understanding of who we are, sometimes it goes to like self-deprecation. I'm, I'm worthless, I'm nothing. I'm just a bug. I'm a worm. God could never use me. And it leads you down this path of paralysis where you think you have nothing to offer offer because you're just a, a sinner. And if you just read Romans chapter two and that's it, you'd probably believe that. That's a harsh chapter about the nature of man. No one is good, no, not one. So why should I even try? That's not humility. That's humiliation. That's not who we are in Christ. Sometimes it's a false humility where we're not even willing to say that we're good at something. Guys, it's okay to acknowledge that God has gifted you in an area. If you play, now I'm not saying that this is a spiritual gift, but if you play in the NBA, which none of you do, but if you did, it would be okay to say, you know what, I'm pretty good at basketball because I'm in a league where only 0.001% of men get to play in. I'm, I'm good. But a correct understanding of that is I'm still only good at putting a ball in a hoop. Not only, you understand what I'm saying here. Okay, I'm good at this, and even though I got a paycheck that has lots of zeros on it, it doesn't make me more valuable than anybody else. I may be a gifted vocalist and thousands upon thousands of people come to see me, but I am not thinking soberly if I believe that makes me more valuable than the person next to me. Yes, we're sinners, but we're saved sinners. We're saved by the same power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. Yeah, we're broken. The Bible says we're broken vessels. But guess what's living inside of us? God has made his home inside of us. So a sober understanding of who we, is, who we are, it means we're not confident in ourselves. We're confident in the God who lives within us. That's how to think sober about ourselves. I'm not boasting in me. I'm boasting in my God. If you have the ability to teach, if you have the ability to exhort, if you have the gift of exhortation or, or administration or the, the gift of prophecy, which we'll get into, we're not going to talk about future telling, but we're going to talk about God's truth and God's time. It came from God. And it's okay to say, yes, this is something God has gifted me with. Now, Paul also says, Think soberly about yourself. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought because God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Have you ever tripped over that verse before? What do you mean a measure of faith? 
Again, we're not talking about faith to salvation. Context is key here. What's Paul talking about? Again, the context is spiritual gifts. And all we have to do is think back to Jesus' parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Jesus tells a, a parable that essentially is about being ready Now then, how should we live? Be ready to go out and do what God has called you to do and use your gifts. That's the heart of this parable. A master entrusted his servants, three servants, each one with a different amount of money. One received five talents, one received two talents, and one received one talent. The ones that received five talents and two talents, they went and they invested the money. They used the money. They put that money into practice. The, the one who received one, what did he do with his talent? He buried it in the backyard. And the emphasis in that story is not the amount that they received, but the fact that God has given us all something. Are we using it? So God has given us a measure of faith. Are we putting it into practice? Don't wonder, it's not about the measure. It's not, well, how much did he give me? It's the fact that he gave you something. Are you using it? Look at verse four. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So we've all been given gifts. We're going to get to that. But here's something that you have heard so many times, but I pray that we really understand it. We are one body. We are one body. It doesn't always feel that way. And as I've said before, you look at all the different denominations today, more than you can even count, and you're like, well, it doesn't feel like we're one body. Well, just because we don't act like it doesn't mean that we're not. Jesus prayed in the garden, God, make them one as you and I are one. And we're one body in Christ. He's the unifying factor. Just like there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, we are all one body in Christ. He is the head. He is the one who guides. He is the one who supplies. The question on all of our minds should be, what does Jesus want from us? Instead of, let me go to church so I can put my agenda into motion, it's, God, what do you want to do today? You're the head. Jesus, you're the head. You guide You're the one who thinks. You're the one who directs. What are you doing? I want to be a part of it. That's when the body is moving together in motion is when we're all tied to the head. We don't pursue unity with one another. We pursue first unity with Christ. And from that, we'll be unified to one another. As we are deeply concerned about his will, we will find that we are all on the same page. Again, you've heard it said that when you have an orchestra that's tuning, they don't tune to one another. You don't have the cello player look over to the guy to the left of him and say, hey, play an E. 
and then you turn tune to that E, and then the guy to the right of him says, okay, you play an E. If that guy's off, guess what? Everyone's off. But you tune to the conductor when he plays a tuning fork or, I don't know, Jeff, what did they play to tune? A tuning... A what? A strobe. I, that sounds like you made it up, but we'll... <laughs> I'll, be, I'll believe you. I'll believe you. But you, tu- you tune to the right note, right? That's my point. So. so we're one body. So why is this so important to... Re- and guys, guys, here, I, I need to warn you. Paul's, Paul's covering a lot of ground here. And we'll dig deeper into each of these things as he writes his other letters to other churches. But as he writes this letter to Rome, it's really a a high-level overview of how to live out your faith. And when we get into 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, we'll get more into the gifts. Um, When we get into some of the other epistles, we'll get more into unity. But again, the point here is we are one body, and we live in a culture that's hyper-individualistic. We live in a culture or a society where it's me and it's mine and it's nobody else. That I have my truth and my truth is what's important. You may have your truth, but my truth is what I build my house on. And guys, there is only one truth and that's God's truth. And we, and we are better off when we are unified in that truth. But it's going to be a battle because our natural response is to conform to a hyper-individualistic world that we live in. And you know what I've seen, and I know you've seen it too, this, this idea of it's just me and mine, it's only been exasperated by COVID and the lockdowns and people staying at home. It, it, it's amazing how people view gathering together as the body of Christ now. How many of you have heard, I don't, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian? Or I, I don't like organized religion. It's, I heard Mike Winger, one of the Calvary pastors, he says, you don't like organized religion? What, you like disorganized religion? <laughs> like, should we say, hey, okay, we start maybe at 10 o'clock, Maybe at 10, who knows? We'll start when everybody gets here. I don't think anyone would be real happy about that. But you hear it all the time. But let me make this point. Spiritual gifts are not what the Spirit gives you. They are what the Spirit gives to the church through you. God has a gift He wants to give it to the church, and he's going to give it to the church through you. And how is he going to give it to the church if you're not with the church? You know, I I am so grateful that we have an online broadcast. But if we have relegated to watching church online, I heard someone say it's kind of like watching a friend's wedding online and keeping your gift for them at home with you. I thought that was a pretty good description. And I understand there's a lot of things swirling around in the world today. And I don't want to discourage anyone. Um, I want to encourage. I want to exhort. We were designed to be together. 
a family belongs together. And we need to take that seriously. And we need to understand there's a very real enemy that knows there's a power behind gathering together as the body of of Christ. So we should never take it lightly when someone tells us you may not gather together. It's not about not wanting to see people healthy. It's not about not wanting to protect people, but we should always pause and not take it lightly that we are supposed to be together. We're all connected. Our decisions, they make an impact on one another. And when we say, I'm not coming, we miss out on your gift. And your gift is valuable and it's necessary. And not only does it affect the local church. Guys, the body of Christ is bigger than Calvary Central, right? We all know that, right? Our pursuit of Jesus or the lack thereof it has a local, it has a national, and it has a global impact on the body of Christ. So Paul says we are all one body. He'll get deeper into this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, but let me touch on something that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. Let me give you verses 14 through 22. He repeats, this is, again, he's, he's given us that same uh, biblical truth. For in fact, the body is not one member, but it's man, many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members yet one body and the eye cannot say to the hand I have no need of you nor again again can the head say to the feet I have no need of you no much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary Paul says there's two ways we get off when it comes to seeing that we are one body one we can look at our spiritual gifting and say well I'm not a teacher the body doesn't need me. I'm not in one of these positions that on a Sunday morning is visible, the body doesn't need me. Paul says, no, that is absolutely necessary. One gift is not greater than another. We may not all all look the same, we may not all have the same roles, but never undervalue your gift. The other mistake is we overvalue our gift. The church really needs me. We need more feet at the church, or we need more eyes at the church, or I don't, we don't need this part of the body. It's unnecessary. So Paul says don't ever undervalue your gift and don't ever overvalue your gift. Guys, we do it. We create celebrity pastors today. They are just men that have a gift of teaching. They are no more important than any other part of the body. We can all say, yeah, we, we know that, but as long as we elevate men and women with certain gifts, we're breaking God's word. We're denying it. I have yet to see an accountant for the church exalted as, do you know any celebrity church accountants? 
or celebrity children's ministry leaders or celebrity deacons or ushers or why do we make celebrities out of one it's not about me it's not about pastor john it's not about the worship leader it's not about it's about one body working together in unity we don't exalt one above the other Paul goes on to write in 1 Corinthians 12, 25, there should be no schism. There should be no divide in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, guess what? We all suffer. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. We're in this together. We're joined together in Christ. Guys, whether we like it or not, we are joined together in Christ. We have unique gifts, unique roles, some more visible than others, but no one is of lesser or greater importance than any other person. Look at verse six. Now Paul moves on into, again, whenever you see a list of spiritual gifts in the Bible, always remember it's never comprehensive. It is not a full listing of all the gifts that are available to individuals in the, bo- uh, in the body of Christ. So again, Paul is giving us a high level. He's covering a lot of ground here. So he just men- mentions a few. He says, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. Remember, it's a free gift. So we've all been given a free gift from God and God gives good and perfect gifts. So we know that whatever you've been gifted with, it is amazing. It's of immense value. He says, let's use them. Will you underline that? Having gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let's use them. Let's put them into practice. Then he says, if prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. If it's ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches and teaching, he's just giving some examples here. He who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. You have a gift, Paul says, use it. And I want to touch on a few of these. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them. Because we can really break, I know a lot of your your guys' minds kind of work this way, where you kind of like organization. So let me give you three categories that we can kind of fit a lot of the spiritual gifts into. They're speaking gifts. So that may be the gift of prophecy, the gift of teaching, exhortation, words of knowledge, words of, of uh, wisdom might fall into that, but they might fall also into leading gifts. But there's speaking gifts, and then there's leading gifts. That may be uh, uh, like um, administration, and maybe words of wisdom fit a little bit better into to leading gifts. And then ministry gifts. Well, you'd say everything is ministry, but this is serving, this is hands and feet ministry, giving, mercy, hospitality, miracles, healings, all different, but all vitally important to the health of the body. So part of thinking soberly or part of accurately having an understanding of ourselves also means that we're kind of in touch with the gifts that God has given us. 
and that we're putting them into practice, as Paul says, with diligence. And again, I want to remind you that we think humility, what we think is humility sometimes is just a lack of trust in disguise. Well, I, I, I can't serve. The church doesn't need me. I, I mean, what, what do I have to offer? Guys, that's not humility. That's a lack of faith. That's looking at God's word and reading that, yes, God has gifted us all and saying, well, not me, though. Sometimes it's just a fear of taking a step of faith. But Paul says, let's use them. One issue I I see often, too, is often we take our gifts and we relegate them to the corporate workforce. We're gifted in a certain area, so we take that gift into the world and we only, I'm not saying it's wrong to use your gifts in your vocation, but it's wrong when it's only our vocation. Does that make sense? It's wrong when we are using our gifts exclusively for a paycheck and the body of Christ is missing out on what God has given you. Do you think that's primarily what God has given you the gifts for? Paul tells us that if we're eager for spiritual gifts, let the primary motivation be the edification of the body of Christ. Now, I'd be the first to say that we under-spiritualize some gifts and we over-spiritualize others. But again, let me remind you, certain roles are not more spiritual than another. So if you've been given the, the gift of administration, that is not less spiritual than what happens up here on a Sunday morning. Some people will say, well, I, you know, I just do the books. You know, I'm, I'm not spirit, I haven't been gifted, you know, in the super spiritual stuff. I just do the books. That's not what Paul says. Everything we have been given that edifies the church is a spiritual gift. Let me give you Acts 6, verse 16, because some of you want to argue about this. So Acts 6, 6, Acts 6, 6. You guys remember in the early church, the church was growing exponentially. By the thousands, people were getting saved. And there was a point where in the church in Jerusalem, they were selling everything they owned and leaning on one another to meet one another's needs. And we read in Acts 6.6, now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution of food. So the 12 apostles, they summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, who we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Again, they weren't minimizing the value of of serving They were saying, this is what God has called us to. This is necessary. Preaching and teaching is necessary, but also as necessary is serving these widows. 
the gift of administration. And do you know how I know it's valuable and it's important? Look at the qualifications. The disciples weren't like, hey, let's just find some guys. Anybody can take care of this. It's just setting up chairs. Anybody can do it. It's just vacuuming the the carpets. Anyone can do it. No. What's the qualifications? Find brothers of good reputation full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Why? Because guess what happens when you set up chairs? There's usually people setting up chairs with you. And when do those everyday conversations take place? There, in the midst of serving. And there's opportunity beyond the pulpit to encourage and exhort and cry with someone, and rejoice with someone. This is just a snapshot of what is happening in the local church here at the pulpit. So I'll say this. If you struggle with what your gifts are, let me give you just something that may help. Ask yourself, what problems do you notice the most? When, When you are here at church or even living your life, What are the problems that you notice the most? Because we're most sensitive to the needs that God has called us to meet. Have you ever thought about that? Because a lot of times we notice the needs and what do we do with that? We complain. We go home and I can't believe they're doing this or have you seen this? Why don't they fix that? We have been given the need, but instead of saying, hey, can I meet that need? We just take it home and we complain about it. So that's one way. If you wonder what your gift is, what do you notice? And instead of maybe complaining about what the church is missing, maybe you're the one to fill the gap. And if you still don't know what you should do, I'll give you three words. Go help someone. Just find someone that needs help. Go help them. That should be on our mind. And that's my encouragement this week, this month, this year. Those three words in the back of your mind. Go help someone. That's being the church. All right, verse nine. Let love be without hypocrisy. What's hypocrisy? It's putting on an act. It's putting on a mask. Don't fake love. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality, given to hospitality. So Paul here is stepping into his gift of exhortation. And he gives three imperatives. He says, love sincerely, despise evil, and cling to what is good. Again, putting our faith into practice, putting our love for one another into practice. Be genuine, be real, love one another sincerely. And then two statements that, for whatever reason, the church has abandoned a little bit. Like despise evil, turn away from evil. 
If something does not honor, honor God, why be involved in it? Like today, we would see that as legalism. Oh, don't tell me what not to do. Well, Paul did. He says, despise evil and cling to what is good. What is good? Only one is good, and that is Jesus Christ. There's joy in obedience, and let's never lose sight of that. Let's never look at God's word and the, the wise way to live and say, oh, that's, that's archaic, that's legalism. No, God is leading us into something that is good and right and fruitful. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, it's important that we encourage one another in that same way. Don't lo- let love be a show. Guys, don't let love simply be, hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine. Okay, have a great week. That's just a show. Hey, can you pray for me? Yeah, I'll be praying for you, brother. And then you never do. That's just a show. And then we're told to be affectionate with one another. And guys, I just have a little bit more for you and then we'll close, but this is really important to me. You've heard it said a few times that we're a family. Let's talk about just our immediate family here at Calvary Central. It's easy to say that we're a family. It's much harder to live out the fact that we're a family. If you guys have ever worked for certain companies where they're like, hey, we're a family here, but the only thing that's family-like is that someone eats your lunch from the fridge, even though your name was on it, but everything else is nothing like a family. But they say, oh, we're a family here, and then they exploit you and use you and... You're like, this is, this is just words. Guys, church can be that way. We can be like, yeah, we're a family, but we don't treat each other like family. I'm talking about health. <laughs> you hear that and you're like, I don't want to tr- be treated like I treat the rest of my family. But I'm talking about a healthy body of Christians where we cherish one another, we tell one another the truth, we're fond of being around one another. I mean, think about brotherly love the connections brothers have with one. Do we have any brothers in here right now that are just like, that's weird. No, no like real brothers? No? Sisters? Any sisters in here right now? There you are. Oh, good. There is a level of love between sisters that is not always comfortable, right? Where you speak the truth to one another even when it hurts. It's, see, we hear love and, and we hear, okay, that's just holding hands and skipping through the fields and thinking that it's just all rainbows and, and roses and that's not love. Love is speaking the truth because we care about one another. That's what the body of Christ is about. We're a family We don't put on a show around one another. That's what makes me really uncomfortable about the culture in Christianity today where the Sunday morning service is simply a show. The church should be a family gathering. It should never look radically different than our everyday lives. So Paul says, be diligent, be fervent in spirit in serving the Lord. Be enthusiastic, excited. Excited about what? helping one another. 
And then he says, suffer well, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, continue steadfastly in prayer. Okay, let's close this up. Verse 14 through 21. Bless those who persecute you. Now where's his eyes going? He was looking internally at the body of Christ. And he says, okay, how do you love people outside of these walls? When you're no longer in a corporate gathering, a family, how are we to love people outside? He says, we bless them. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That means we hurt even when people outside of the faith are hurting. We come alongside them in their moment of need and we respond to it. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place place to wrath. Whose wrath? God's wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Guys, as the persecution increases for the church in America, and let me say this, it has not gotten that bad compared to what other Christian believers are going through throughout the world today. But it is getting worse. How do we react to that kind of persecution where lies are being told about us? We're being called bigots and ignorant and science deniers and all of those those phrases that people love to to run to how do we fight against that and even in that word fight we're like okay let's let's do this overcome evil by doing good bless those that curse you if your enemy is thirsty give him a drink if he's hungry feed him so that you will heap coals of fire on his head. Now, you you may hear that, and again, I've heard this explained in so many different ways. Some say that heaping coals on uh, a fire on his head was a saying that they used um, that meant just you bring shame on their head. And there's not a whole lot that supports that, um, but that's what some would believe. And some would say, and, and I'm, I'm okay with this too, I've even taught this before, that, that heaping coals of fire on his head, you guys have heard this before, there was a community fire that everyone would light their individual fires from in the center of town, and you'd keep that fire burning perpetually, and to heap coals of fire on someone else's head meant you were helping them take those coals to their house, and you were kind of being a blessing to them. Maybe that could be the case, Or maybe looking at the context, it means exactly what it means. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Well, how does that make sense? 
the best thing for the world to feel is the pain of their own decisions. And when someone is persecuting you, the best way that you can cause them to feel the pain and the shame of what they're doing to you is to not go where they're going, to show them grace when they don't deserve it, to continue to meet their needs even though they are a thorn in your side. Guys, we want to make a difference. We want to show this world what love looks like. Do not repay evil for evil because all that does is justify the evil that's being done. Does it mean we don't have a backbone? No, it's not evil to stand up for what is true and right and good. But there's a way we get in the flesh, right? When we hear things that just make us angry. And that Facebook algorithm is continuing to put that in front of us over and over again because they make money off of our own, you know, getting riled up. But instead, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And I think that is more important for Americans now than ever. Don't return evil with evil, bitterness, resentment, vulgarity, hatred. But instead, God, I need your supernatural love because I want to react in the flesh. But Lord, I pray for them. How can I meet their needs in the midst of them treating me like garbage? Because I I don't want to shame them. Vengeance is yours. But I want them to see the errors of their ways. Guys, that only scratches the surface of Romans chapter 12. I encourage you, go back, study it for yourself. There's no way on a Sunday morning to do an exhaustive teaching on any chapter in the Word of God, but I hope that your taste buds have just been wetted a little bit and you can dig in for yourself. Let's pray. God, your Word is so rich. And I often feel simply inadequate but I am reassured that you use the weak things of this world to confound the the wise. So I pray, Lord, as we see what it means to live out our faith in light of all that you've done, I pray that this heart would grow within us, and that's a heart of surrender to your will knowing that your ways are higher than our ways and your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Help us to be men and women of surrender. And Lord, humble us. We have your son as an example who came not to be served, but to serve. So put that that heart in us also. Put that mind in us that was in our, our Messiah in Christ Jesus that we may look at those around us and say, how can I help? How can I meet a need? How can I be your hands and your feet and how can I be your mouth? Let the words that come out of my mouth be edifying and encouraging. Let me be sensitive to those that are hurting not only in our body here, but those I come in contact with on a daily basis. There are so many hurting people in the world. 
And if we get past that hard exterior of pride, we'll find people that are just looking for answers, just as we were. So we want to be useful with the time that we have. We want to be diligent. We want to put our gifts into practice. Lord, we love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.